It was a sunny September morning when we heard on the wireless that we were at war. For weeks everyone had felt it coming. The air was heavy with expectation, rather like when a thunderstorm was building up and you wait for the first crack of thunder. But now the waiting was over. The war had started and I think we were ready for it. So when about two minutes later the air raid sirens sounded, we knew just what to do. It was a Sunday morning, and I was at home with my mother and father and two sisters. We went down into the cellar and sealed round the edges of the door with brown sticky paper. The Germans, of course, would be using poison gas on us. We sat and waited. Then someone realised that the dog was still outside, so we unstuck the door and brought him down. I forget how long we stayed there, but eventually a radio announcement told us that it had been a false alarm. An unscheduled plane had apparently flown in over Norfolk, and that was all it was. Next day, they were calling for volunteers to start digging air raid trenches in Hyde Park. I'd recently been in hospital with a partially detached retina in one of my eyes, and I thought I ought not yet to start digging. But on the Wednesday, I joined up. They'd opened recruiting centres in the main London stations, and I joined the back of the queue in Victoria Station. I was wanting to get into the Navy, but word came back down the queue that there was a six-month waiting list for the Navy, and I thought the war might be over before I could get started. So when I heard the man in front of me ask to join the RASC and saw him accepted, I told the recruiting sergeant that I too wanted to get to the RASC. I hadn't the vaguest idea as what the letter stood for, but the formula worked. The man at the trestle table gave me two shillings and told me to report back there at eight o'clock. That was it. I was in. I later learned that I joined the Royal Army Service Corps. So I went home, put a few things into a suitcase, kissed everyone goodbye and returned to Victoria Station. They herded us all together and took us to Waterloo Station where they put us on a train for Aldershot. There was blackout everywhere now, of course, so when we got to Aldershot and were shown into the barrack room, we almost had to grope to find our beds. These, I noted, were all about four feet long. Next day, it turned out that the bottom half of the bed slid under the top half to be pulled out at night, and that the three small mattresses they gave us, each about 30 inches square, could be spread out to make a fairly comfortable bed. But I was tired, and I thought that if the army liked its beds half-size, I'd better start getting used to it. So I curled up on this half-bed and went to sleep. My mind's a blank about what happened in the next few days, but I do know that within a fortnight we were on our way to France. They did us with rifles, but hadn't told us how to use them, the rifles, I remember, were heavily greased and in need of a clean. Anyhow, there we were, on board ship, off to win the war. In France, they put us on a train, and we travelled all through the night. On one occasion, the train pulled up, and some women came round with hot, spiced wine, which made us feel vaguely heroic. After all, we were on our way to die for our country. When it was daylight, we found that the train had stopped at the station, so we got out and found we were at a place called Le Mans. 
There was a large map of France on the platform, and we all crowded round it, trying to find out where we were. We searched the Belgian border and the eastern frontier. We come to fight the Germans, so we suppose we must be somewhere near the German border. Suddenly, there was a cry from the other end of the map. Le Mans was right in the west of France, miles away from the Germans, so there was no immediate prospect of death and glory. This cheered us up a lot. Eventually, we came to La Baule, which was a holiday resort in South Brittany, on the north coast of the Bay of Biscay. As we drove through the town in our open trucks, the girls were all lining the streets, waving at us and blowing us kisses. We almost felt we'd won the war already. We drove through the town to the hotel, which had been requisitioned for our use. I was taken upstairs and along dark corridors to my room. They threw open the shutters, and I looked out on the bay, bathed in sunlight. What a way to start the war. There were four of us RASC privates in our office, and I don't remember what we were meant to be doing, but I can't think there could have been very much to do anyhow. Postage was free for those on active service, so I used to spend my days learning to type on a massive old Olivetti, sending letters to all my friends at home, telling them how the war was going. We had good fun in that office. It's, it's marvellous how young people managed to enjoy themselves in just about any situation. I remember we put up a notice on the wall, clock, clock watchers don't win wars. One day they came round asking if anyone could speak French, and since another lad called Henry White and I said we could, we were detailed off to join a new section they were starting, the Central Purchase Control Board. Its function would be to supervise or arrange the purchase of French goods for the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, of which we were part. The new section consisted, I think, of a full colonel, a major, two captains, a warrant officer, class one, and us two privates to make the tea. One of the captains had been working in France before the war and seemed to do most of the work. They set up the office in a little village called Gouy-en-Artois, in the northeast of France, in the Pas de Calais. White and I were billeted in a cottage with some men from the Inniskillings. I never lived among men like this before, and it was a great thrill to discover that I got on all right with them, and that they accepted me, even though I felt so much younger than they were. In the loft of the cottage, one of them found a British bayonet that must have been left there after World War I. Charming as the Illiskillings were, White and I had no mind to spend our evenings in their company, so we approached a woman in a farmhouse and asked her if she had a room she could lend us. She showed us an outhouse with a stove in it, and it was there that we went every evening to cook our supper. The family was called Roi de Latre, and I got very friendly with them. One day, I remember, I was helping Monsieur, I think he was called Emile, to lift some sugar beet, when suddenly his massive cart horse heeled right over and fell on the ground, unconscious. Apparently this was routine. He got out a sort of chisel, punched a hole in the horse's neck so that the blood spurted out, and after a short time the horse came to and got up, and we carried on. There was a system then in France of some soldiers on active service having a marraine de guerre, a war godmother. Women 
who had no son or husband in the services, would adopt a soldier and keep him supplied with socks and cigarettes and so on. So Madame Leroy adopted me as a filleul de guerre. There was no material side to this apart from her hospitality, but it created a very happy relationship. And when I wrote to her after the war, I would always sign myself her affectionate filleul. She had two small children of her own, a boy and a girl. In December that year, that is, 1939, the Central Purchase Control Board moved to Paris. We were billeted in an hotel near the Gare du Nord, and I had to share a room with another private, a poor man with smelly feet. Not always smelly feet, but the sort you can already smell on the landing below as you came upstairs. I'm sure there must be some sort of cure for that sort of affliction, but perhaps he was not aware he had anything wrong with him, and people had been too kind to tell him. Being in uniform in wartime Paris gave one certain privileges. There was a canteen in the Gare du Nord where we could have dinner every day for about sixpence, and for the same price we could get a seat at the opera and in concerts. So once a week I'd be going to the opera, and once to the opera comique, and occasionally to a concert. I remember at one concert there was the first performance of something which, to my Philistine ears, sounded pretty awful. The composer was there, and when it ended and the applause began, everyone was turned towards him, beaming their admiration and clapping for all they were worth. Eventually, the clapping died out, and in the ensuing silence, there was a sudden loud cry, horrible, well, horrible it was in French, of course. It was marvellous. There's a moment of stunned horror, and then the applause broke out again, fiercer than ever. I was glad that there was at least one person in the audience who shared my Philistine taste. On one occasion, I remember, I was walking along and was stopped by another British soldier coming the other way. He looked anxious and asked me where the brothels were. I wasn't able to help him. I didn't even know the French word for brothel to help him in his search. Poor fellow. As the months went by, the scene-shifting in the opera house became markedly slower and noisier. I went to the last one there on the Saturday before the Germans came in. It was La Flûte Enchantée, and there was something quite pathetic about those long, noisy, between-scene pauses. I may say that during those months we had no Wagner. I'd bought a bicycle and used to cycle around the central part of the city in the evenings, admiring its beauty. The most beautiful spot, I decided, was at a table outside a cheap little cafe on the left bank where I used to go for supper. It was almost opposite Notre Dame, and to see the flying buttresses rising out of the chestnut trees in flower was a pure delight. As I sat there and watched the moon come up and bathe the cathedral in its light, it was easy to forget that there was a war on at all. In fact, I once did, and got back to my hotel to find everyone very worked up, because I'd left a light on in my room with no blackout. On Sundays, I used to go to the embassy chapel for morning service, and the chaplain invited me round one evening for a meal. He was very kind and did most of the talking. In those days, I was extremely shy, and it must have been heavy work entertaining me. But when I got home from visiting him, I felt strangely dissatisfied, and it wasn't until some time later that I realised just why. 
I wanted to talk about God and didn't know how to start. Those months in Paris were, for me, a time of spiritual disquiet. I remember kneeling down at my bed one night, begging God to give me either life or death, either death in the war or life that I knew I somehow lacked. What I needed, I suppose, was confession, or at least a good act of contrition. But all I knew at the time was that I was very uncomfortable with myself and didn't know what to do about it. In J. M. Barry's Peter Pan, you may remember, the little boy wanted his nose blowing. This was something he'd never done on his own. All he knew was that he was uncomfortable and that things were not as they should be. When I was with a chaplain, I really wanted to talk about God, but he gave me no opening. We just talked about this and that. So I returned home as heavy-hearted as I'd come. In those days, we always had to keep our gas masks with us, but life was leisurely in Paris, and in the hot weather, instead of the gas mask, I used to keep bathing trunks and a towel in my gas mask case. I fear I'm giving a wrong impression of life in Paris, as though I had nothing to do but go to the opera and enjoy myself. In fact, of course, we had to go to the office every day, and we had our hours of duty. I would sweep the place out and keep it clean, and in general try to be an obliging office boy. When I was on duty and the phone rang, I would pick it up and say, Central Purchase Control Board, in what I thought was a suitably harsh manner. I used to get quite a kick out of the courtesy with which senior officers the other end of the line would address me. They wouldn't know I was just a private, but they did want something out of our office, so they were very polite. If they were French, I'd say, Ici, l'armée britannique, in my awful English accent. I reckon this would help our war effort too. I remember that in that first year of the war, we bought up all the available champagne there was in France for use in our hospitals. I believe that story then, and I think I believe it now. Champagne, apparently, is a great pick-you-up. Well, all good things come to an end, and so did the phony war, as it was called. I was told that our military attaché was having breakfast in his hotel one morning, when a man at the next table said to him, Well, it started, and showed him the headlines in his paper. The poor military attaché leapt up and rushed to his office. It turned out the clerk on duty had indeed received a telegram in the course of the night, but hadn't thought to do anything about it. So, on the Monday after that last La Flute Enchantée, we left Paris, and the Germans arrived on the Wednesday. As we drove away from our hotel, the concierge stood weeping on the pavement, and little boys threw stones at us. This was in mid-June 1940. We were not the only ones to be heading westward from Paris. I remember long lines of slowly moving traffic, all trying to get as far away from the Germans as they could. On the inside lane there were farm carts drawn by horses, piled high with household goods. In the middle lane there were mainly army vehicles. The outside lane was for oncoming traffic and was empty, except once when a car pulled out of our lane and tried to race ahead. Someone opened up on it with a machine gun and it pulled back into line. A very effective way of dealing with road hogs. We came to Le Mans and our colonel tried to set up office there. But he must have received orders to leave the country 
and we continued our journey to Saint-Nazaire. White and I queued up to embark on the Lancaster, but when I was about to board, we were told that the ship was now full and we'd have to go on the next ship. I was later told that the Germans sank the Lancaster with a bomb down the funnel. We embarked on what must have been some sort of warship because there turned out to be an anti-aircraft gun right next to the place on the deck where I was trying to get some sleep. It woke me up, of course, when they started firing it, and I sat up, but this was just as well because our warrant officer had been looking for me. Our colonel was the senior officer on board, so he was automatically OC ship, and our warrant officer was in charge of accommodation. He'd been looking for White and me because he had a cabin booked for us. So there we were, luxuriating between clean sheets, and outside our door, lying in the corridor, were some RAF officers. Private soldiers can get quite a lot of innocent pleasure from this sort of thing. While we were at sea, we were told that France was going to surrender and that Churchill had, of had offered France some sort of political union. This thrilled me, because I do love France. Back in England, I think our Central Purchase Control Board must have been disbanded, because I had nowhere in particular to go. So I applied for a commission in the Gunners. My father had been in the Gunners in World War I, but anyhow, I didn't fancy the idea of marching, and Gunners ro rode in trucks. So they took me on, and I went to an octu in Cataract. OCTU, O-C-T-U, stands for Officer Cadet Training Unit, and it was, if you survived, a six-month course. Two things I remember of Catterick. For the first time, I went into a Catholic church. It was large and clean and airy, but didn't impress me one way or the other. And also, for the first time, I had to lecture to a room full of people. We had to speak for just two minutes, and I was terrified. I learnt off by heart what I'd written, and then, when my turn came, I stood up and head, headed for the podium. I remember nothing, then, of what followed till I got back to my place. Another, another thing I remember at Catterick was the eve of the day when they were going to decide whether to commission us or not, and I prayed very earnestly that I'd get through. I remember thinking that there could be all sorts of good I could do if commissioned, which otherwise would be beyond me. I should explain that immediately before the outbreak of war, I realized I had a vocation to the ministry and was already preparing to enter an Anglican theological college. This explains the vocational view of things I took then. They decided to commission me, and I felt very elated and proud of my one pip. I even tried to grow a moustache, but this was beyond me. You could see that something was trying to happen, but after a month or so I gave up and shaved it off. When we left Catterick, we went on a few days' leave and then joined our new regiments. Mine was the Bedfordshire Yeomanry, 148 Field Regiment RA, and I stayed with them till the end of the war. The regiment was stationed in East Anglia, somewhere near Yarmouth. It was winter and very cold. We reckoned there was simply nothing between us and the Urals. However, I'd been there only a few days when we all moved up to Hoyk, just over the Scottish border. I remember one incident during the train journey up north. 
We were sitting in our carriage, some of us playing cards, some just chatting. We heard an air raid warning, but we all carried on with what we were doing, all except one man who suddenly cried out, I don't know about you chaps, but I'm going to die fighting. And he later, and he leant out of the window, pointed his rifle to the sky, and fired. It takes all sorts to make the world. I always laugh. Every time I think of that, I laugh. While we were in Hoyk, I got in touch with an elderly couple who were related by marriage to a man I'd been at school with. They were Delia and Walter Wilson, and they were very kind to me. One evening after dinner, I was looking at his books, a habit which is possibly bad manners, but one which I'd never even tried to correct. I pulled out a book by F.J. Sheed, Map of Life, and asked Mr. Wilson if it was any good. He took it and wrote my name in it and gave it to me. Then he took out another book, Catholic Belief, by Father Bruno, and wrote my name in that book too. Needless to say, I read them both avidly. That was the thin end of the wedge. The Catholic chaplain was a Father Aidan Jackson, OFM, Franciscan, and he would sometimes come with me to the Wilsons, and we'd talk a good deal about about religion. Delia was Irish and a cradle Catholic, Walter an enthusiastic convert, and I'm sure they both prayed for me. They also gave me a book called One Lord, One Faith by Vernon Johnson, and this convinced me that the Catholic Church must indeed be the true Church. However, I was equally convinced that God wanted me to stay Anglican. It seemed obvious to me that if God had wanted me to be a Catholic, I'd have been born a Catholic. And anyhow, if I became a Catholic, who was going to look after all the Anglicans? When I said all this to Father Jackson, he just smiled and said nothing. Delia called me a vacillating Christian. I should mention something that happened around this time. I'd come to know a girl at one of the dances the town laid on for us, and had fallen into the habit of spending most evenings with her, generally at her parents' house. After a few weeks, she suggested marriage. I said, no, when the war's over, I'll be going on for the ministry, so I'll not be getting married. I mentioned this disedifying episode to make two points. First, that some young men, apparently quite decent, can sometimes be utterly self-centred and unaware of or even unconcerned about other people's feelings. In my work as a priest, I've so often had to tell girls this. God has made them with wonderful qualities, but in some ways they can be terribly blind and pathetically vulnerable. And the second point is this, that even to an Anglican in those days, celibacy seemed part and parcel of a full-time Christian ministry. After a short time at Hoyk, we moved down to Rochdale in Lancashire, where we started our most serious training. Both the battery commander, Ronnie Archdale, and my troop commander, Peter Fane, were regulars. The rest of the officers in our battery were amateurs, like me, volunteers for the duration. Ronnie and Peter were both about my age, perhaps a bit older. In Rochdale, we got to know a couple, Alec and Barbie, who had a tennis court, and we used to go around there every week. There were five of us generally who went, Ronnie and Peter, two other captains in our battery, Freddie Bradshaw and Andrew Barr, and myself. These weekly visits were our great relaxation. Forgetting the war for one afternoon, we'd bask in the warmth of light-hearted normality.
I remember once Barbie said to Ronnie, who I suppose had come out with something especially outrageous, Ronnie, you ought to be shot. And he came back with, but Barbie, I am. I'm terribly shocked. The senior lieutenant in the battery was Cordell Newbury. He was thin and austere, and I can't remember him laughing much, though he did save my life later on. The men were all billeted in an old warehouse, which they'd whitewashed from top to bottom. I remember him remarking that with another coat of whitewash, they'd all be going down with snow blindness. Peter Fane, being my troop commander, had the job of training me, and he was very strict. He said he knew he was giving me hell, but he had somehow to get three years training into me in two months. One night, I remember, I had to take the troop out for night exercises. I don't know how it happened, but we had a pile-up of guns and trucks at the bottom of a steep hill somewhere near Skipton in Yorkshire. So at about two o'clock in the morning, I had to come and break the news to Peter. He was lying there in his sleeping bag out in the open, and the moonlight fell on his face. He looked utterly peaceful, quite angelic, and I paused for a moment to look at him before waking him and shattering the peace of the night with my news. It must have been around this time in Lancashire that I once wandered into a Catholic church. It was a large church, quite empty, except for a choir practice going on somewhere up in a choir loft. I wandered down to the front, knelt down, and was suddenly overcome by a fit of weeping. It just went on and on. Eventually it finished, and I got up and went out. When this happens, I always take it as a sort of green light from God, a come-on signal. Finally, we moved down to Monmouth. I was billeted with the other subaltern in a small house owned by an old lady. My roommate smoked cigarettes incessantly. In the morning, he'd wake up coughing and would just cough and cough and cough while he groped for the cigarettes next to his bed. He'd put one in his mouth, light up and inhale deeply. That set him up for the day. He was very good company. Someone told me he'd played cricket for his county, and he was certainly a great bridge player, smiling and relaxed, a cigarette in the corner of his mouth, never hesitating or seeming to think, and remembering every card. While we were in Monmouth, we went to the Welsh mountains for a week or two for firing practice. We were billeted in an old farmhouse with stone walls a yard thick. The countryside seemed all too beautiful for what we were doing but I suppose we had somehow to disregard our better feelings. Otherwise, we, we couldn't have carried on. It was while we were still in Monmouth that I decided to become a Catholic. I'd been on the ordinary Sunday morning church parade, but the sermon had left me unhappy. There was nothing wrong with it, but it just hadn't been about our Lord, and that morning it seemed to me that all I really wanted was Jesus. So after lunch, I went round to the house next door to the little Catholic church and told the priest that I wanted to be a Catholic. The parish priest was a little old man with snuff stains all down the front of his cassock. And so far as I remember, the only instruction he gave me before we left on embarkation leave was on the shortcomings of our 16th century Queen Elizabeth. I went to Mass there, and everything seemed very strange. It had a strange smell and even stranger singing. But what was strangest of all was the second collection. I'd never, ever before heard of two collections in one service. 
from Monmouth, we were all sent home for a few days' embarkation leave. Then we reported back to Liverpool and embarked on our ships. We were the 18th Division under General Percival, mainly an East Anglian Division. Besides ourselves, there were three regiments, the Beds and Hearts, the Norfolks and the Suffolks. I think there must have been others, but that's all I remember. Perhaps when I eventually finish this narrative, I should put what you sometimes see at the bottom of invoices, E and OE, Errors and Omissions Accepted. So we all embarked and sailed out into an Atlantic Ocean, which, as far as we knew, was pretty well thronged with German submarines. I can't remember seeing any of our own Navy escorting us. But then, after a day or so out at sea, we came up on deck to find ourselves surrounded by warships, the American Navy. This gave us quite a holiday feeling. We were sailing around the world on a cruise, escorted by the American Navy. I believe Roosevelt and Churchill <coughs> had had some sort of lease-land arrangement by which the Americans gave us all the help we needed without their actually having to declare war on Germany. We made our way across the Atlantic and came to Halifax. We arrived in the evening after dark and feasted our eyes on the city lights. After blacked-out Britain, the lights gave our eyes something they seemed to need. Early next morning, we were to leave our ship and re-embark on an American ship. This involved the officers getting no breakfast. When I joined the regiment, I was told that the order of feeding was first the horses, if there were any, then the men, and finally the officers. And since second lieutenants were generally acknowledged to be the lowest things in God's creation, it meant that in the eating order, we were the last of the very last. Well, there was a second lieutenant in another unit whose name I forget. He always looked slightly slovenly. Once, when he'd spilled some beer down the front of his tunic, someone commented, anyhow, it'll help wash the egg off. Now, this young man was markedly keen on his food. And on this particular morning, of course, he'd had to miss his breakfast. On the way from our ship to the Manhattan Wakefield, on which we were to embark, we had to pass through several warehouses. In one of these, there was a great pile of sacks containing some sort of bean. One of the sacks at the base of the pile had split and spilt beans out over the floor. This was our lad's big opportunity. He paused for a moment to scoop up a few handfuls and stuff, stuff them into his pockets, and for the rest of the morning was thus able to keep his stomach occupied. Unfortunately, the beans turned out to be strongly laxative, and the poor man was on the run for days. Perhaps I should apologise for these trivialities, but I'm writing fifty years on, and while pleasant or amusing incidents are still fresh in my memory, there must be less pleasant ones which I've happily forgotten. As I see it, that's how it should be. A healthy organism rejects what is harmful and accepts what's, what makes for health. That's how our bodies work, and I think that's how it ought to be in our minds too. In this connection, let me tell you something that happened just after the war. I'd had to go to a hospital for tropical diseases for a check-up, and while there got talking with another XPOW. He had something very wrong with his liver or kidneys. Anyhow, he, he was quite ill. 
and he told me how much he hated the Japanese. He said he'd met a couple of Japanese girls on a bus and he'd insulted them, and this had made him feel really good. And I wondered to myself, which came first, his hatred of the Japanese or his sick innards? And I decided that it was his hatred that had poisoned his body. And if I may go on with my musing, if it's true, which it is, that we're made in the image and likeness of God, then, since God is love, it must be that hatred in the mind will lead to sickness in the body, and a cheerful, forgiving mind should make for health. That's how P.G. Woodhouse lived to the age of 92. So there we were, on board the troop ship, heading south. One day... Far out at sea and out of sight of land, we saw that the sea had turned brown. Apparently, this was all part of Brazil, washed out to sea by the mighty Amazon. And when you think that this has been going on day and night for thousands of years, it makes you wonder how there can be any of Brazil left. And yet, of course, there is a great deal of it. But down on the floor of the Atlantic, there must be millions of tons of marvellous Brazilian mud, Doubtless there are creatures down there that thrive in it. The food on board was excellent, and they gave us vast helpings. I remember one man complained that his steak was too big, and asked the steward if he could have a smaller one. The man picked it up between his finger and thumb, flipped it through the open porthole, and went to the galley for a smaller one. As we sailed further south, we had an enormous albatross accompany us for a time. It must have had a wingspan of about 12 feet. After that, we always referred to our chick- chicken helpings as albatross. Many of the men played housey-housey pretty well non-stop. After the war, the game was known as bingo. But one group was playing Monopoly. And one of the players got so worked up over the game that he took off his watch gave it to the banker and said, give me, t- give me £10,000. So the banker gave him £10,000 of the game's token currency, and the man was able to buy up Regent Street, or whatever it was he wanted. When the game was over, he said to the banker, can I have my watch back, please? The banker said, no, you sold it to me. Don't be stupid, it was only a game. The banker insisted, so they brought in an officer to adjudicate He decided in favour of the banker. Certainly it was a game, but you were serious. You sold him your watch. It was a stupid thing to do, but you did it. You must accept the consequences of being so stupid. I've often used that story. People barter their immortal souls from mere nothing. It's the underlying pathos of so much of what you read in the papers. It's what makes a priest's job so very worthwhile. The ship went far south, and the air got quite chilly. I can't remember if we met any icebergs, but on the other hand, we didn't meet any German submarines, and that was the the object of the exercise. So we approached Cape Town as though we were coming up from a visit to the South Pole. And it was at about this part of our journey that Pearl Harbor happened, and America came into the war. Overnight, the American crew on our ship became serious, and something of the party atmosphere on board vanished. We had four days shore leave in Cape Town, reporting back to the ship each evening. A part of the city, District 6, was out of bounds, 
otherwise we should go where we liked. We were, I think, the 17th convoy to have called there, yet people were so kind to us we might well have been the first. I remember once another fellow and I were standing on the curb discussing what we might do when a car drew up and a man asked us if there was anywhere we wanted to go. We had no idea, of course, so he offered us to take us to his club. He was Jewish, I remember, and he took us to his country club and entertained us till it was time to take us back to our ship. The strawberries and cream we had there are somehow burnt into my memory. On another occasion, we went to a dance at the Mount Nelson Hotel. This hotel, I was told, is built of Aberdeen granite, brought out to Cape Town as ballast on ships that exported South African produce to Scotland. While we were at the dance, General Smuts arrived. The music stopped and we all gathered around to hear what he had to say. Maybe he always spoke in a rather slurred way, but my guess was he'd already been celebrating somewhere else. He certainly was in very good spirits. He said, You know, we ought to put up a statue to the Japanese here in Cape Town. They've at last brought those Americans into the war. This was less than a week after Pearl Harbor, but the poor man wasn't to know that all the naval officers in the room were Americans. There was a certain amount of muttering among them. We met a girl at that dance, when one's in uniform, one's always meeting girls, and she was keen on sailing, so she took two of us out in a little drop-keeled dinghy on a lake, which I think she called a flay. This was very enjoyable. In fact, South Africa is altogether a most beautiful country. However, the brandy I had, though I suppose it must have been one of their cheaper brands, seemed pure fire water, and as for their Cape to Cairo cigarettes, they're called just sea to sea on the packet, we call them a camel to consumer. Finally, we re-embarked for the last leg of our journey onto Bombay. There was a Catholic chaplain on our ship, Father Michael A. Halley, and as soon as we left Halifax, I'd introduced myself to him. So in all these weeks, I'd been going to him for instructions. By now, we got to the end of the catechism, and he said I was ready to be received. So far as I remember, the only two things I was sure about were that Christ was God, which I'd always known, and that the Catholic Church was the true Church. There were many things I didn't understand, and some I didn't like, but I kept my mouth shut, because I felt sure I had the faith, and I just wanted to be a Catholic as soon as possible. So on the Saturday evening of the weekend before Christmas, he received me into the Church and heard my confession, and at Mass next day I made my first Holy Communion. I'd been dreading that first confession, but Father Halley made it very easy for me. And as I came away, I thought that if I got nothing more out of the church than this one sacrament, it would have been well worth all the trouble. My heart was really very full, and I went up to the boat deck under the night sky, where I could be alone and give vent to many tears of gratitude. For a day or so in the Indian Ocean, we had an enormous shark swimming alongside. Someone told me of the superstition that sharks always know when someone's going to die so they can get the body. And sure enough, someone on board did die, followed, I suppose, by burial at sea. At long last, we arrived at Bombay and went by train to Pune. Our mess, I remember, was in Prince of Wales Drive. 
This was in the last days of December 1941. In England, our motorbikes had been fitted with dust excluders for use in the desert, and it was assumed that we were to be trained for desert warfare. However, it was to be otherwise. We'd not even unloaded our guns when, early in the new year, we were told to re-embark. So we returned to Bombay and got back on our ships. We understood we'd be sailing under sealed orders. As the ship steamed out of Bombay Harbour, we were all on deck, wondering whether it was to be North Africa or Singapore. All the ships sailed due west for about half an hour. Then, in one movement, the whole fleet turned south. It was to be Singapore. The news wasn't too good about Singapore. Indeed, as the days went by, it got worse. The Japanese sank one of our battleships in those waters. I'm not sure they didn't sink two. They seemed to be carrying all before them. We docked at Singapore in the last days of January 1942. As we disembarked, we saw RAF personnel embarking on the next ship. That was all we saw of the RAF. It wasn't until some years after the war that I learned why. One of our officers, Indian Army, but seconded to the RAF, who had a Japanese girlfriend, had been betraying to the Japanese the whereabouts of our planes. So even though we frequently moved them, the Japs kept up their accurate bombing and eventually put virtually all our planes out of action. One day, during an air raid, when he wasn't in the dugout with the others, someone went to his room and found a radio transmitter still warm. He was arrested and sent down to Singapore. A day or so before we surrendered, he said to the other prisoners, Well, I'll soon be free, and you'll be either dead or prisoners. And the officer in charge took out his service revolver and shot him dead. So the result of this one man's treachery was that during the fighting we had no air cover and the Japanese had a walkover. My memories of the fighting are a bit hazy, but I remember a few incidents. Quite early on, soon after we landed, it must have been known that we'd have to surrender, so they organised an escape party. Peter Fane was going to be on it, and he told me that I was to be in charge of the troop. To begin with, we were somewhere in the north of the island, and I remember we had to set up our guns in a coconut grove. To get firing clearance for the guns, we had to cut down some trees. Cutting down coconut trees wasn't one of the things we'd been practising in England. I remember one tree landed right through the roof of a hut. A man came out and said, hey, that's my house. <laughs> all, I could, all I could think of was to say, well, there's a war on for a man. But I think the sort of roof they have there is fairly easily repaired. They make it, or at least they used to make it then, of layers of dried palm leaf. This keeps the house cool and also keeps out most of the rain. Another time, I had to give a watch out at night on the northern shoreline. As I watched the two horns of the moon slowly come up over the horizon, I imagined it might be Satan himself coming up to have a look at the world and enjoy the sight of us all fighting each other. With nothing happening, I began to examine the map with my torch and noticed that the creek next to where I was lying was called Crocodile Creek. I thought about this. If it was called Crocodile Creek, there could well be crocodiles there. 
and it was just round the corner from where I was lying, a yard or two from the water's edge. After that, I found myself very attentive to the sounds of the water as it lapped on the beach. Every little sound suggested a crocodile sniffing his way up to his next meal. Another time, I remember I was in a trench, again on the north shore, and Japanese shells were coming over. I counted 94 landing the far side of me, and 4 or 5 on the near side. At the time, it never occurred to me that one might land in my trench. Before the fighting began, I remember I'd been very afraid, lest I should be afraid. But when once it had started, it never even entered my head that I might be a casualty myself. Maybe it's a matter of temperament, or maybe I assumed my guardian angel would always be on top of the job. Maybe a bit of both. Certainly, later on in the fighting, when a Japanese shell landed between my feet as I walked across the field by our guns and didn't go off, I somehow took it for granted. Obviously, defusing a shell would be child's play to an angel. But all the same, there was something exhilarating about it all while the fighting was going on, and I must admit I enjoyed it. It was while we were still in the north of the island that, feeling tired one day, I decided to have a siesta. Since I was in charge of the troop, I reckoned it important that I should keep fresh. So I went into my tent and was soon fast asleep. Just then, Ronnie Archdale came round to see how we were doing. When he found me asleep in my tent, he gave me the biggest rocket I've ever had in my life. I was very fond of him, and this upset me a lot, and I remember I wept after he'd gone. Still, no doubt, it did do me some good. A large field, when Cordell Newbury strolled along and suggested I move them to another part. He gave no reason why, but I moved them, and sure enough, the Japanese later heavily shelled the position we'd first taken up. At the Octu back in England, we'd been given lectures on German fighting methods. I thought these lectures rather pointless. I didn't know how I was meant to fight myself, and it seemed to me a bit much to have to learn how the Germans did it. But as it turned out, our ignorance of the ways the Japanese did things enabled them to make fools of us. In those days, we didn't know one Oriental from another, so the Jap soldiers would change the civvies, tuck a weapon under their shirt, and cycle through our lines. Our men would probably give them a friendly wave as they passed. Then, once behind our lines, they'd start sniping at us. This made us a bit jittery. I remember that we'd been exchanging rifle fire with some people on the far side of the field, thinking they were Japs, when suddenly, in a lull in the shooting, we heard a cry from the people we'd, we'd been firing at, for Christ's sake, stop shooting. Every troop had his tannoy system, so that the firing orders could be heard clearly by each gun. I brought a little wind-up gramophone with me from home, so when nothing else was happening, I broadcast records to the gun teams. It was good fun being an amateur disc jockey, and I think they appreciated the music. And then, when orders to fire came down from the battery command post, I'd lift the needle off the record and call, Take Post. There was an abandoned bungalow just behind our guns, 
and I used this as a troop command post. Many of the people who lived in Singapore had guessed what would happen and had managed to get out in time. I think the general assumption among our own troops was that although the future of Singapore looked pretty bleak, we were going to fight it out to the last round of the last man. Morale was very good. So when, on Saturday, February the 14th, we were told that we were going to surrender at four o'clock the following afternoon, we were shattered. The main feeling, I think, was one of terrible humiliation. Did we ever have to surrender and to the Japs of all people? I remember seeing one of our sergeants sitting at his garden weeping, and I think I'm right in saying that he was weeping for England. I've never felt so patriotic in my life. I smoked in those days, and I remember throwing all my smoking gear into a hedge and saying, never again till I'm free. Actually, I started again a week or so later, and only gave it up when it got down to smoking tea leaves. We were all going around like men in a dream, not speaking for shame and sorrow. At nightfall, I went into my bungalow command post. The owner had left his gramophone there with a record in it. It was too dark to see what it was, so I wound up the machine and put the needle on and slumped back into an armchair, prepared to be given over to melancholy. The music started. It was a mandolin dance band playing Tristesse, which starts off, I think, How Still Is the Night. The music had been taken from something of Chopin's. Sitting there, dry-eyed, I let the music weep for me. As the melody went out into the still tropical night, I felt that all nature and the very stars must be sharing our grief. I kept that record and went on playing it as long as I could. Once, after the war, when I told someone this, he said, but that was looting. Well, I'm not sure about that. But as I said earlier, in wartime, things seem a bit different. Later, in the prison camp, I met a man who'd driven down from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore, keeping ahead of the Japs, and on the way down had gone into an abandoned music, music store. There was a pile of gramophone records on the counter, so he picked them up and put them in the back of his truck. After the surrender, he looked to see what he got, but, but was disappointed to find they were all copies of King George VI's Christmas speech. I remember only one fatal casualty in our troop during the fighting, and he'd been my batman, a very quiet, good man, older than me. It was for the last few days before the surrender. I was walking across our field by our guns in the early morning when it was still dark, and saw a body lying on the ground. It was this dear man. His side had been blown out by a shell, and he must have died at once. After the war, I'd been at home only a day or two when his widow called, asking for news of her husband. This was the saddest thing that happened to me in all the years of the war. I suppose I should have reported his death at once, so that the Red Cross could perhaps have been told, and the news got back to his wife. The thing I certainly did forget was to blow up our guns. We'd been told all about this in the Octube course. The way you do it is to load the gun, stick another shell in the muzzle, tie a long string to the firing handle, get everyone out of the way, and then pull the trigger. A spectacular thing to do, quite apart 
from our giving the Japs four perfectly good guns, I'm sorry I deprived everyone of the experience. Next day, the Japanese made us all march off to the northeast corner of the island, a part known as Changi, which was to be our prison area. As we went along the roads, we saw little Japanese flags on every house and in every garden, but we realised that this was only an excusable means of self-protection and indicated no real change of heart. The part of the island that we'd been given was the most healthy and had been our military station. So the roads and houses and drainage. There were stores of food there too, so what with surrounding the area with triple rolls of barbed wire, digging latrines, repairing the drainage which had been put out of order by the shelling, and finding accommodation for everyone, we seemed to be looking after ourselves for a week or so before the Japanese sent out much of a guard to administer the camp. Besides our own 18th Division, there were also an Australian Division and some Indian troops. In fact, we guessed that this is perhaps why we'd come to Singapore at all. We thought that Churchill had perhaps been told that Singapore could not hold out, and since the only people defending the island, apart from the small British garrison, was this Australian Division and a lot of Indian troops, he diverted our 18th Division into the trap for the sake of public relations. From the very first, the Japanese separated officers from men. I suppose this was the obvious thing to do. It would make it easier for them to control us if trouble broke out. So in our part of the camp, we had just officers, Australians, Gurkhas and ourselves. Very early on, the Japanese had a triumphant motorcade. We, in our thousands, lined the road that led up from Singapore and a stream of large cars, which of course had been ours, slowly drove through, so that the Japanese general and his senior officers could see the extent of their victory. It was quite the most galling thing I remember. There were not many who attempted escape, and of those who did, few reached safety. The Japanese held the seas for a thousand miles and more around Singapore, and in all the neighbouring islands, rewards were offered to the natives for the capture of white troops. The only people we could always trust were the Chinese. During the first few months of our captivity, life was very peaceful. Small working parties went down to the city of Singapore in the south of the island to clean up the bomb damage, and there we had the consolation of experiencing the kindness of the Singaporeans. Of the million or so people in Singapore, most were Chinese. They and the Eurasians, or people of mixed birth, were kindness itself. They treated us as though we were their own sons or brothers. I saw an old Chinese man walking unobtrusively through a crowd of our men, giving out money as he passed. I saw Chinese children sent by their parents with armfuls of fruit for us. I saw an old Chinese woman hawking tobacco by the roadside, throw us packets of cheroots as we passed. And in this last case, the Japanese guard turned on her, knocked her down, and when he couldn't get us to accept her wares, threw them into the deep gutter. Our official position was now that of slaves, and we were given little tickets to pin on our clothing, which apparently put us at the disposal of any Japanese troops that met us. Anyhow, that was how it worked out in practice. If you weren't already doing a job under the eye of a Japanese soldier, 
any other soldier who wanted something done would just beckon to you and tell you in sign language and perhaps with a word or two of English and always with an accompaniment of angry threatening noises what he wanted done. The manner of beckoning caused her little confusion at first. If they wanted you to approach, they would wave their hand at you like a woman waving goodbye. So in the early days, a man would hear a roar, and looking up, would see a Japanese soldier waving at him in this ambiguous way. Reckoning that he was where he ought not to be, he would begin to make off, only to hear another and fiercer roar. Heavens, the man was waving angrily. Our poor prisoner would quicken his pace, and on hearing a maddened roar of rage, would drop all pretense of dignity and fly in panic. But we soon learned their practice of face-slapping made up in some respects for their want of English. At first, this was a great shock to us, but as with so many other things, we got used to it in time. The first time I had my face slapped was when I was down in the city of Singapore. Officers didn't have to work, but one was always detailed to go with each working party. I'd detached myself from my working party to do some shopping, and was walking back along a lonely road to rejoin it when a lorry full of Indian soldiers with two or three Japanese in front passed me. I wasn't anxious because anyone, I thought, seeing a British officer out by himself in uniform would assume that he was on some duty. But the lorry stopped and a little Japanese corporal came back and said, Pass, pass. I felt flummoxed and gave him a piece of paper with some English writing on it. I thought that anyhow, he probably couldn't read. Before I knew what had happened, he'd slapped me hard on the face. I stared at him in astonishment and anger. Not that I felt angry, I was too surprised. But he looked as though he were going to slap me again. As it was, he just directed me back to the camp and returned to his lorry. And I stood there, feeling ashamed of myself. That Indian soldiers should have witnessed such an indignity seemed to me to reflect dishonour on my country. I still had a lot to learn about what makes for honour and dishonour. We had a number of army chaplains taken prisoner too, and this made all the difference. Our Catholic chaplains began to offer Mass daily. I remember I used to attend Father Whelan's Mass every morning. He was a Holy Ghost father and had been a missionary. In those days, priests had to hold their forefinger and thumb together after the consecration in case any fragments of the host should stick to them and drop on the floor. So, kneeling behind him, I thought that on each of his hands the top of his forefinger was missing. I like to fantasize about things, and I soon decided that Father Whelan, in some heroic missionary exploit, had had the tops of these two fingers bitten off by hippopotamus. Actually, Father Whelan was indeed heroic. The Japanese had told us that anyone leaving the camp would be shot. We'd heard that a man who tried to escape and been recaptured was going to be executed in Changi Jail. This was a mile down the road. We didn't know who he was, but Father Whelan set off to see him, to hear his confession if need be, or anyhow, to help him prepare for death. Father Whelan got there and back safely, but we all knew it was a really heroic thing to do. He asked me once to get some altar prayers for himself and the other priests, so next day when I was out with my working party, I asked my way to the cathedral. 
bang at the presbytery and was led upstairs where I found the bishop playing billiards all by himself. I fancy he was French. I told him what the priest wanted and he asked how many altar beds they needed. I had no idea, but I said two hundred. He counted them out one by one while I was sweating with anxiety lest my absence from the working party should be noticed. However, he also gave me a copy of St. Therese's Story of a Soul in French. This, like everything else, was providential and helped me a lot. And when I read it, I swapped it for a copy of The Imitation of Christ. To begin with, I suppose our priests had enough altar wine, but I was told that later on they made their own by soaking raisins in water, crushing them when swollen, and then fermenting the result. I was told they offered mass using three drops of wine and one of water. It wasn't long before food shortage began to be a main problem, as it was to be for the next three and a half years. However, we had strength enough still for other interests beside the main one of keeping alive. Many had been teachers or had specialist qualifications in pre-war days, in real life, as we would say, and they began running courses in this and that. The chaplains, too, started instruction classes. So, of course, we built chapels. The Japanese, I must say at once, never put obstacles in our way in this matter, though, of course, they didn't help us with materials. But they never objected to our practicing our religion. There had been a large Catholic church in Singapore which had been completely demolished by several direct hits, and the ruins provided us with timber, tiles, and statues for several little chapels. We had a choir, too, and sang the Bissa de Angelis, and even one of Terry's masses in three parts. But before this came off, they asked me to leave. Apparently, the chaplain said to someone, Do please get that man to stop mass and stop him singing. It'll be one of the joys of heaven that we all be able to sing in tune, and we'll be able to sing as much as we like, without having the people in front looking round. I'd like to say something about my attitude to the Japanese. In fact, it's partly because of this that I wanted to write all this in the first place. First, as I think I've said, I never hated them. The reason I never tried to learn their language or have anything to do with them was because I felt it was not right to do so. I obeyed them because I had to, but never wished to fraternize with them in any way. We were enemies as long as the war lasted, and that was how I wanted to behave. Since the war, and this is something I don't understand, I find I have a special affection for them. Maybe there's a psychological reason for this. St. Patrick wanted to go back to the island where he'd been a slave to evangelize the Irish. St. Isaac Jogue, after terrible sufferings, went back to his beloved Indians and to martyrdom. And Father Lionel Marsden, one of the great heroes of the prison camps, as I'll say later, volunteered for the Japanese mission after the war. After my ordination, for many years, I was a chaplain to overseas students, and I found that my heart always warmed, especially to any Japanese I came across, and I always tried to help them. The fact that they made us their slaves never struck me as being unreasonable. Since time began, prisoners of war, who could not be ransomed, have been enslaved. How else was Hadrian's Wall built? 
I read somewhere that the whole economy of the Roman Empire depended on the slave markets. Having said that, I should add that we took great pleasure in stealing off the Japanese whenever we could get away with it. They'd first stole it all off us, so we, of course, took back all we could. I heard of an Australian who had the job of transporting cans of petrol from a warehouse to the docks for sending to Japan. He made his job easier by selling every other lorry load to the Chinese, and when the warehouse was empty, he sold the lorry. Another story I heard was of a Japanese officer who came to a camp to lecture the troops about stealing. He was surprised that the British were such thieves. I don't think they distinguished much between the Australians and ourselves. So he lectured them at some length and then got back to his car and drove off. But the poor man didn't get very far. While he'd been speaking, someone had siphoned the petrol out of his tank. Life in Changi got into a fairly ordered routine. Working parties went out every morning to continue with their work of clearing up bomb damage. In the evenings, people would gather together to chat or sing or listen to various talks that were being arranged. We were making the best of our reduced circumstances and really making quite a good thing of it. But early in 1943, the Japanese interrupted this routine. They began drafting men away in parties, several thousand at a time, for an unknown destination. This introduced an undercurrent of fear into the camp. The air was vibrant, you could say, with the sound of people pulling strings to get off these moves. For myself, as I was in the camp hospital with dysentery, I stayed behind in Singapore with the majority. Before long, word came back to us that these parties had gone to Siam to begin work on a railway. The Japanese, it seemed, had decided to add India to their conquests. For the invasion, they needed a railway to, to link the Indian Ocean with the South China Sea. It would run from Bangkok in Siam to Moulmein in Burma, through the jungles and forests and mountains of the interior. For this purpose, they press-ganged all available labour in that part of Asia, Chinese, Malayans, Indians, plantation hands, and, of course, all their prisons of war. So one after another, these working parties disappeared from the camp, taking all the fit men with them. Those of us left behind thought we were going to stay there till the end of the war. But one day, the peace of our prison life was broken by talk of another draft upcountry. The Japanese reassured us by saying it was not a working party they needed. Food was short on the island, so they were going to establish a camp further north where it was more plentiful. I was included in an officer's party of 300 destined for administrative work in the camp. The position was this. The engineer in charge of building the railway had told the emperor that he would commit harakiri if it weren't finished by September. September 1943, and he was now well behind schedule. There were 20 cuttings still to be excavated. Perhaps I should have mentioned earlier that the Japanese rather despised us officers because we hadn't all committed harakiri when Singapore fell. By their standards, to let ourselves be taken prisoner was extremely dishonourable. In case you don't know, harakiri, that is, Jap in Japanese, hara, meaning belly, Kiri, meaning cut. 
Harakiri is a particularly revolting sort of suicide involving disembowelment. I expect it comes to their octave course. So this Japanese engineer had a strong personal interest in getting his railway finished on time. He reckoned that if he could have another 10,000 men, he could do it. I suppose it was because they knew there were some people so good at getting off things that they could get off everything short of the general judgment that they said this last group was destined simply for a rest camp in the hills of Malaya. There was thus quite a cheerful atmosphere in the camp as we got ready for the move. People took musical instruments with them and indeed all their remaining possessions. The rail journey tested our good spirits. There were 27 of us in each truck packed in with all our luggage. Trucks had been used, I think, for carrying rubber and tin and were made all of iron, measuring about 15 feet by 5 feet. Inside these, roasted by day and chilled by night, hunched up or sprawling across each other, we jolted and rattled our way up north, cheered by the thought of the rest camp that awaited us. Although we stopped only once a day for food, that was cold rice, black tea, and a small piece of dried fish, the train would occasionally stop for a few minutes to let us stretch our legs. Then we'd crawl back into our cages, and as the engine started up again, 50 yards ahead of us, we'd hear a crescendo of crashes approaching us as each truck, in turn, was jerked into motion. At the climax of the crescendo, we too were jerked forward and our journey continued. When we reached the end of the line, we were placed in a transit camp. This had been used by all the troops passing through, and since none of them had had the opportunity of exercising any hygiene control, was unbelievably filthy. While we were here, we heard that the troops ahead of us had been started on a 250-mile march through the jungle, and we began to realize a little of what we were in for. After two days in this transit camp, we entrained again and traveled for a last few miles along the new railway line that had just been completed. When we finally reached the end of the line, we began, in our turn, night marches through the jungle. So we began our long march. I had to decide how much kit I'd be able to carry, balancing my dislike of a heavy load against the wretchedness of having to part with treasured possessions. I forget how many nights we marched, or how far. It's as jumbled in my memory as a dream, or perhaps I should say a nightmare. One night, I remember, we were marching, or straggling might be a better word, down a road with a forest on either side, and there, over to our right, I could hear a drum beating. I pictured to myself someone sitting under a palm tree with his family all round him, his wives and his children, with him tapping away at his drum. He was poor, perhaps, and perhaps illiterate, but he was free, and I was a slave. Unless you have yourself been deprived of your freedom, it's harder to realize how precious it is. People who prize material advantage above personal freedom deserve to lose both. The Israelites, who just escaped from slavery and yet wanted to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt, never reached the land of freedom flowing with milk and honey.
They died in the desert. Apparently, Deng Xiaoping used to say that the most important right of every Chinese citizen was to have a decent meal every day. When I heard that on the radio, I thought, oh, that's just where he was wrong. He was never a slave himself. Poor, maybe, and a victim of injustice, but never a slave. Slavery is worse than hunger or illiteracy or ill health. Slavery strips you of everything and cuts you off from free men. In the early days, when I was in Singapore on those working parties, I'd be walking through a crowd of people and felt as though there were an invisible wall of plate glass between them and me. They were all free, and I was a slave. In fact, without the faith which makes your heart safe and free from human intrusion, I doubt if I could have survived those years. I don't think I ever really blamed the Japanese for having enslaved us and treating us the way they did. The innate dignity of each individual is a Christian concept. And since I suppose the Japanese were pagans, I couldn't blame them. I told myself, you can't blame pagans for behaving like pagans. Mind you, that's not quite the way I sort of way I talk today. But in this narrative, I'm trying to recapture the events and mentality of those war years. In those days, if people weren't Christians or Jews or Muslims, we might call them pagans. And to me, anyhow, Thailand was still known as Siam. During that long march, I remember that on another occasion, three of us decided we'd, march, we'd marched far enough for one night. We'd have a nap and catch up later. At the side of the track, there was some raised ground, and there we lay down. Because of the mosquitoes, the other two covered themselves with their ground sheets, but I covered myself with a Union Jack. I'd picked it up somewhere, and it happened to lie on top inside my pack. Sooner or later, I suppose, we'd win the war, and I wanted to be able to nail it up and sing Rule Britannia or God Save the King. So I covered myself with my Union Jack. Next morning at first light, a small party of Japanese soldiers came trotting past, and some of them came up to investigate. Seeing these shrouded bodies, one of them covered with a flag, they cried out, Cholera, Cholera, and made off as quickly as they could. Sometimes I think we must have marched by day, because I distinctly remember once seeing the man in front of me stop, lower his bundle to the ground, put it behind a tree, and go on carrying nothing. In the hope of saving his physical life, he parted with all he had. If people would only make a fraction of such a sacrifice to save their spiritual lives and their immortal souls. Ordinarily, we marched at night because of the heat during the day, and one morning, as dawn was breaking, I caught up with the head of the column and found that we'd arrived. It was just another bit of jungle, but this was to be our home, so we cleared the undergrowth, which was mostly bamboo, and pitched our tents. Our group of 300 officers was made up of Gurkhas, Australians, and ourselves. And it was up here in the jungle that the horses really showed what they could do. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think they had their tents up and their dinner cooking while we were still debating where to pitch our tents. And later on, as I'll show, they were most enterprising in the way they introduced meat into our diet. 
We'd expected to sleep on the ground, but the Japanese would not allow this and showed us how to make raised sleeping platforms from bamboo. So we got the tents up, lit cookhouse fires and dug latrines, glad that we'd at last stopped moving. Our job in this camp was to, re was to prepare timber for the railway. We went out in parts of 20 to where trees had been felled and then, with bamboo poles across our shoulders and wires going from them under the trunks, we would jog our way down forest paths to where they were to be dumped. I think the wood was mostly teak. It was certainly appallingly heavy, and the taller amongst us suffered greatly, having to bear so great a weight in a stooping position. Once I passed another of our parties at work. One of their number had dropped out, and the Japanese in charge had found a Chinaman to take his place. As he jogged along beneath his load, with his flattish conical hat, his flapping cotton trousers, and his composed air, he stamped his companions, who were wearing tattered remnants of officers' uniforms, and didn't look really comfortable as amateurs at the game. As I've said, we weren't the only people working on the railway. There were enormous numbers of Tamils and Chinese, in fact anyone the Japanese had been able to lay hands on. Once I met someone from what I think we used to call French Indochina, and we conversed in pidgin French. I think we were both probably equ equally pidgin. For a few weeks while I was in this camp, I went out with a small party whose work it was to square up timber. We had a very pleasant little Japanese with us who knew something about the work and taught us how to use an adze. An adze is like an axe, but with a blade at right angles to the shaft. He showed us how to stand astride the tree and swing the adze down to take a slice off the trunk. On each trunk, he'd marked the lines we had to work down to, and when we got it more or less right, we turned the trunk over and do the next side. As long as you hit the tree and not your own leg, it was very enjoyable. Sometimes, too, we worked with an elephant. There was a boy sitting on top of it who was in charge, and the elephant drew a little sledge to which a tree trunk was tied. And then one of us would be detailed to walk behind the elephant to shout to the boy if the tree trunk came off. It was wonderful walking through the forest on a fine morning right away from everyone, just you and the elephant and the boy. Once I spent most of the morning on top of the elephant talking with a boy who wanted to buy my watch. But he didn't have enough money, and anyhow, it wasn't very comfortable because I was wearing only a pair of cotton underpants and the elephant's back is prickly. Another time, the elephant gave me a shower bath. It had been raining during the night, though now it was sunny, and when we passed a deep rut in the track full of water, the elephant put his trunk down as he passed and hooshed up a quantity of water. He then hoisted up his trunk and discharged over his back, with a good share coming to me, walking immediately behind him. One day, the elephant didn't turn up, and we asked where he was. He was having a day off. We protested, jokingly, because we knew it was no use. We knew that their elephants were few and precious, while we were many and expendable. The purpose of this particular camp was to, 
was to build a bridge across a valley. So far as I remember, it was done by wiring two lines of timbers together in crisscross fashion up to the required height, with horizontal timbers across the top to carry the rails. I thought it marvellously ingenious, especially as the man in charge seemed to be doing it all by eye. After the war, I came across that book, Bridge Over the River Kwai, and read a few pages, but I thought it gave such a false impression, I stopped reading. It seemed to make out the Japanese to be stupid. Well, one thing they're not, they're not stupid. I used to compare them in my mind to the ancient Romans. The same discipline, the same engineering ability, the same courage and resourcefulness. And as for their ruthlessness, what empire ever came into being without it? When we'd been in this camp about six weeks, we were told that we were now needed to work further up the line. It's absurd how fond one gets of a piece of jungle, but certainly we were all sorry to leave. Better, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know was the general attitude. During this next march, I remember we had to pass through one of our camps where they'd had cholera. We lay on the ground in the sun, waiting for dinner, and looking around at the huts set in the clearing. Apart from our party, there was hardly a man to be seen. It was as silent as the grave. Only later did we learn why. It was a grave. Almost the whole camp had died of cholera. We had only a few nights' march to reach our new campsite. This was in a magnificent setting on a high bluff above a river and sheltered by tall trees. Once we'd cleared the bamboos and set up our tents, our spirits began to revive. Unfortunately, the Japanese gave us no respite, but within a few hours of our arrival, sent the first party out to work on the railway. We were to work in two shifts of twelve hours each, and to begin with, I was on the day shift. This was from six to six. We got up at about four o'clock, and after a mugful of hot, wet rice, paraded. This always took an age. Because men were sick, we could never master the number of workers required. Men, who were soon to find relief in death, were brought out of the hospital tent and sent out to work with the rest of us. The sun did not rise till about 7.30, so all this took place in the dark and often in the rain, for it was then the rainy season. At last we could leave for work. One or two men would carry empty mint milk tins in which were pieces of cotton waste burning in oil, and the rest of us would follow, pressing close behind each other, fearful in that trackless jungle of losing sight of the man with the light. After three quarters of an hour of stumbling through the forest, we heard the roar of an air compressor engine, and soon we were at the cutting that was to be the scene of our labours for the next two months. It was an astonishing sight. About half the cutting had already been excavated, and there was a twelve-foot road running into the heart of the hill, where it seemed blocked by an enormous fall of rock. Over the face of this, and working along the light railway that ran to the foot of it, were some two hundred men. There was no moon, but their bodies shone in the light of numbers of naphthalene lamps. 
Here and there were Japanese soldiers watching moodily or shouting angrily. There was a continual roar of pneumatic drills. The faces of the prisoners were expressionless with fatigue. Really, it looked just like hell. We took their places. This was the occasion of a wonderful act of heroism by, I think, an Australian. As the new shift came up to start work, he saw among them a pal of his, obviously a very sick man. Hey, chum, you go back and lie down. I'll do your shift. And he took his place for another twelve-hour shift. Heaven must have marvelled at that charity. Later on, when the Japanese saw that too many of us were dying, they changed our shifts and bring two twelve-hour shifts to three eight-hour ones. The work was done by drilling holes in the rock, dropping in a charge of dynamite, lighting it, and then clearing away the debris after the explosion. The cry of dynamito from the Japanese soldier never seemed to come in time for us to reach the shelter safely, but I don't think anyone was ever hurt. Once there was something of a panic as the rocks started falling among us as we ran. I was caught up in the panic, and it was a horrid feeling. Your instinct for self-preservation gets the start of your reason and seems to blind it. I remember running over someone who tripped up, and the difficulty, when I was myself again, of apologising to him. We had a young Japanese officer there, always very well dressed in light blue uniform, whom we called Little Boy Blue. When the dynamite was lit and we were running for shelter, he disdained to move, but just stood there on high ground with his hand on his sword hilt. After the explosion, we would return to the cutting to remove the debris. We had a number of little wicker baskets, and a dozen or so of us would stand in a double line, passing them down one side loaded to be emptied onto a truck, and then back along the other side to be filled by a man with a shovel. It was surprising how much work we did in this primitive way. I no longer marvel at the pyramids. You could shift Table Mountain to Timbuktu if you had enough slaves and enough whips. We've been tipping the excavated rock over the side of the hill, and this had now become a pier running out into the valley, with a light railway running along the top of it. When the truck was full, the rocks under its wheels would be removed. There was a cry of warning, and with two men aboard, it would rush down to the end of the pier, where two men would be waiting to tip the rubble into the valley below. Then the two passengers would push the truck back to the rock face to the team with the wicker baskets. For five minutes every hour, we had a rest. The Japanese would call out, Smoko, and we'd all stop work, some to sleep, some to have a smoke, some to lean against the rock and talk. One night, I was working at the end of the pier with an American merchant seaman called Kelly, who'd been landed at Singapore from a German submarine. Kelly wasn't his real name, but that was what we called him. As I've said, this pier was made up from the rocks we take from the cutting, and it now ran a hundred yards out into the valley, with a light railway laid on top of it. On either side of the line, the rocks fell away steeply, and Kelly and I seemed poised between heaven and earth. 
There was no moon, and the only light we had came from a rag burning in oil in a milk tin. Every few minutes, a truck would rattle down the line out of the darkness, and we would stop it, and then push the rocks over the side of the truck into the darkness below. On one occasion, Kelly was trying to shift a very heavy boulder all by himself. I was daydreaming, in as far as you can daydream in the middle of the night, and suddenly realised I was letting him do all the work. He was pulling it over towards himself, so I got under it my side and gave a mighty heave. It shot off the truck and dis disappeared into the abyss, and for one awful moment it looked as though Kelly were going to follow it. But he recovered his balance and then began to swear at me. He swore at me steadily for about a minute. I forget just what he said, but I remember feeling very frightened at the intense meaning he put into his words. Still, we laughed about it later. When we were on the day shift, we'd stop at noon for a half hour's dinner break. Our dinner was a pint mug of rice and another full of tea, always, of course, without milk or sugar. Sometimes, too, we had a piece of dried fish as big as your finger, which was very appetising and also, apparently, full of proteins. Some people seemed to know how to count proteins and calories as they saw them all lined up in front of them. When the 30 minutes were up, there'd be a roar from the guard, we'd start work again. On these day shifts, we suffered greatly from thirst. You can forget hunger, because the weakness it brings acts as an anodyne, but thirst keeps in the forefront of your thoughts. To begin with, perhaps, I would think of what I could do with a pint of beer. Then I would change the order to shandy. As my thirst grew, I decided the soft drinks were better and toyed with the idea of freshly made lemonade. Or perhaps I'd think of the tea that would be waiting for us back in the camp. But I always ended up by thinking of water. I used to think sometimes that there are probably many men in England who would envy me my thirst. When eventually we were back in the camp, we would drink two pints of tea straight off, and it seemed to go nowhere. What we needed, though we didn't realise it at the time, was salt. The medical staff kept all the salt that came into the camp, so the rest of us, with all the sweating we did, suffered greatly from a shortage of salt, and it was this that gave us our chronic thirst. When we got back to Singapore, we would go down to the sea and bring back buckets of seawater in which we would cook our vegetables. When you've been without salt for a long time, seawater is delicious. Mention of the medical staff reminds me of their resourcefulness. They had no medicines, but for all stomach complaints they gave us wood charcoal. Charcoal somehow absorbs poison. Tapioca leaves, for instance, are poisonous, but after boiling with wood charcoal, they're edible. And stomach ulcers and stomach complaints in general are helped by taking charcoal. That's why I like burnt toast. If my friends have smoke alarms, I always seem to set them off, trying to bring my toast up to a healthy balance of brown and black. <laughs>